Peace and greetings, everyone. Welcome to Goddess Talk Radio. I am your host, Daphne, and this is where you get to listen to phenomenal women share about doing extraordinary things while living their best lives. It's all about the rise of the feminine divine. So that means I am producing jewels, okay? Straight diamonds, straight emeralds, rubies, gold coins. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Can you like translate that into these wonderful conversations? Like my heart just feels so sparkly and bubbly. My spirit just shimmers every time I get on the line with these powerful women who have amazing, amazing products, uh, programs, services, initiatives, things that they're doing in their lives on a daily basis. And all of this contributes to the health, wealth, and success of themselves. But the beautiful thing about that is it bubbles into the communities. It trickles, it, no, it pours into the people that they love the most and that are connected to them. And then it just ripples out into the community. So I am just honored and humbled to be a part of um, presenting these women's stories to you all. I hope you are enjoying the ride here with Goddess Talk Radio. I hope y'all sticking with us and I hope you are sharing the links, liking the page, dropping some applause, inviting your sister friends and brothers to listen because it's always lit on Goddess Talk Radio. You know, you feel me? <laughs> Again, I am your hostess with the mostest and I talk the most shit. <laughs> but I'm having fun doing this and that's what it's all about. I hope y'all feel the fun that I'm having. I hope y'all um, can just like really feel the energy and I hope that these stories, you know, really resonate with you guys. Like on a serious level, I have the biggest intention to just help spark creativity, to help you relate, to help you not feel alone in this world, to help you to understand different topics on a different level, to help transform and shift your energy, to help give you hope, all of that good stuff. So on the flip side, we're going to get into some conversation about, yes, black academia, black women in academia, black people in academia, and why that's important and necessary. All right. Hey, y'all might want to grab a notebook too, because I know this sis is about to be dropping some jewels. She's a historian, a black scholar, I'm sorry, a black studies scholar. She is an intellectual activist. Oh my gosh, she's a professor. Yeah, so we about to get into it. All right. But in the meantime, I want you guys to enjoy this dance break. Hey, ow, 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 ow. <laughs> Hey, peace and greetings, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us and, um, yeah, getting back into the swing of things here on Goddess Talk Radio. I hope you enjoyed that dance break. <laughs> so it, as y'all already know, is such a pleasure and honor to do this podcast. Oh, my God, I've been having the opportunity to talk to so many different women, uh, many different experiences and contributions and projects and gifts and crafts. And it's just been an amazing ride. And I'm so um happy. <laughs> Simply put, I'm so happy to be doing this. So I have a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful soul on the line. I was fortunate enough to meet her last March. 
um, at a conference and it was just filled with so many beautiful black people in Africana studies, African-American studies um, from all over the world, from all types of institutions and universities. And man, I was just so blown away. And I was even more blown away to be connected to this beautiful person. Lanice Littleton, she is a PhD candidate, black studies scholar and historian. Welcome, Lanice. <laughs> Hey, Sister Daphne, how you doing? I'm doing so well. How about yourself? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. I've been so nervous. <laughs> That's okay, because I'm nervous every show. Okay. <laughs> so we just having a conversation. That's all. And we are just going to bless everybody else with the opportunity to hear us talk. <laughs> yes, here for it. I'm totally here for it. Thank you. I'm so here for it too. Mm-hmm. So wow, that that's a very, very powerful um title, um, words to have a connected to your name, PhD candidate, black scholars, um, um black studies scholar and historian. Wow, like what has that journey um pursuing your PhD? What has that been like thus far? How much time do we have? <laughs> I it's can imagine. You know, um, it's funny because people ask me all the time, like, how did you know you wanted it? How did you know you wanted it in, in, in Black studies? How have you been doing this so long? And what's crazy is I tell people all the time, like, I really don't feel like I chose this at all. I feel like it chose me. Mm. Um, things have kind of, um, they've not been easy but things have really um, fallen into place for me on my um, on my journey. I tell people all the time, you know, I've been doing black studies my whole life. Like I grew up, um, I learned how to read very young mm-hmm. and I was fortunate enough to be raised by my mother and her three sisters and my grandmother who were just like, you know, as we would say in Denver, just hella black, like mm-hmm. everything we did. Black. I grew up going to the Black Arts Festivals and Juneteenth and reading Black storybooks and celebrating Kwanzaa and all the art in the homes was Black. So it felt very natural for me to study Black people. Mm-hmm. Um, when I went to college, I had declared an ethnic studies major. I went into college, declared an ethnic studies major, and I had to take intro to Black studies. And I'll never forget, I was sitting in the classroom and I was like, wait, like, this is a whole field of study. Like this is a whole discipline. Like I could really, I could get paid to study <laughs> black. Like I could get paid to be doing right. And um, ever since then, like I said, it's just been, it's been a wild ride, but it's been a great ride. I ended up at um, at Clark Atlanta, um, which has just been a, a blessing. It's really been a blessing to study um, our history and culture in a predominantly black space. Mm-hmm. Um, it really is a gift, especially coming from I went to um, University of Colorado undergrad and there was like 300 of us out of 30,000. It was not a lot. Wow. So it's really been an honor and a privilege to study at Clark Atlanta and to really um, be connected to Atlanta. You know, I'm from Denver, Colorado. And when I got here, I was like, man, I'm going to get this degree, knock out this two years and I'm getting out of here. And uh, Friday will make it nine years I've been here. Mm-hmm. So 
Um, I feel very connected to Atlanta now. I feel connected to the space. So that's just been how I ended up in this vein. Like I said, I never, I, a lot of my colleagues are like, oh, well, I remember when I just realized I wanted to do black studies. And I honestly can't tell you I, I ever like had a moment where I wasn't interested in black history. I will tell you though, um, my sophomore year of college, I had a mentor of mine tell me, he said, well, you know, Lenise, uh, you should get a PhD. And no one had ever said that to me before. I was like, what do you mean? Mm-hmm. And he was like, well, you know, um, Angela Davis has a PhD. And at that point, I was like, sign me up. <laughs> I was not idle. She was going to sign me up. And so here I am in the in the final stages, hoping to wrap up soon. It's, mm-hmm. it's a, a journey. It, it really is a rite of passage. <laughs> wow. Wow. A rites of passage. That's so beautiful. Now, I know that like black studies departments um, across the nation are. I guess they're closing down at a lot of institutions. Is that correct? That's true. A lot of them um, are merging. You know what I'm saying? A lot of into like interdisciplinary study programs or like uh, you could get like a degree in history with a concentration in black history or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but here's the thing about black studies. I tell people all the time. One, it's a relatively young discipline. Like when you look at the span of disciplines like English, like history, uh, like sociology, like they, they've had some um, longevity. Black studies really comes on the scene in like 1966. And we come on the scene as, you know, a discipline of protest. It's in our blood. It's in our, it's it's really in the DNA of the discipline. And so while we are being phased out in some instances, I think that in other places we're thriving and Mm. remaining, remaining resilient because that's that's part of what black studies is you know what i'm saying it has to have an element of resistance in it it had we we have to fight for the inclusion of black people and black stories and black women especially um in the curriculum like in these spaces and it's funny because you know i study um education on the plantation specifically the 19th century historian And it's so funny because a lot of the time, I think we tend to think that, you know, black people really didn't decide we wanted education until, you know, last week when LeBron opened the school, like shout out to the king. However, yes. Yes. (laughs) However, education has been something that we have been seeking since the continent and then on the plantation for so many uh, generations and then into reconstruction and then the turn of the century. And then uh, we've always been looking for ways to educate ourselves. And so I just think that black studies exist in that continuum for black people. Can you share with us the difference between black studies, um, Africana studies, African-American studies? um, And is there's another one, is there a difference or what? I think that a lot of the time, the difference in the naming of programs mm-hmm. is going to come from, it will reflect what generation that program was founded in. Oh. A lot of the time. So if, if it's a black studies program, it's very likely that that program 
originated in the 60s. So if you're looking at like San Francisco State, that's a black studies program. Got you. <laughs> at Clark Atlanta, um, we do African-American studies. But um, what's really great about our program is that we are very like Afrocentric. We're very like Africana based. Um, so it's kind of like I would say Africana is like the umbrella term. Gotcha. You know I mean? And, you know, that's looking at folks who are um, of the diaspora, of the common origin of the continent. But at the end of the day, well, here's the thing, too. I tell people I like the term Africana because I think that it forces us to recognize um, an African identity and consciousness. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's really important that we begin to identify ourselves with um, an I- identity that extends beyond, you know, captivity or oppression in the space of American, of America. So, yes, we are American in location, American by, you know, nationality. But before that, we're African. So I think it's really important for us to use terms like Africana just to make that point that we are Africans in America or Africans in Jamaica or Africans in London or Africans in France, that, you know, we have a common origin and um, a shared history and a collective identity. I think that that's part of the problem when we disconnect with the fracturing, even within the discipline, even with, you know, folks who will be like, no, I don't do black studies. I do Africana studies. And it's just that at some point we just gonna have to acknowledge that we're all Africans. (laughs) Wow. Right. And move forward. Yeah. Mm. Hmm. Why do you think it's important for um, black women specifically to, you know, um, engage in academia at the level of, you know, obtaining a doctorate, a degree in something? You know. Or do you think it's important? That was my assumption. I think it's very important. Um, It's funny because, you know, I teach. I'm also a professor. So I I talk real loud in the front of the classroom all the time. (laughs) And um, what's really amazing is, you know, I I teach Black studies. I teach history. um, I teach humanities. And... I, I, I feel like I'm delivering really good content. Like, I'm, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm up there doing my thing. But what has surprised me the most in all the years I've been teaching is the number of young ladies who have come to me and been like, wow, I've never met anybody like you. Like, I never thought I could get a PhD or I never thought I could wear my natural hair. I never thought I could be outspoken without, you know, being called bossy or saying I have an attitude or a chip on my shoulder. So... I think that it's important, I think, for the just the number of young women who, like, see me on the promenade, <clears throat> and I had them four years ago, and they scream my name. They're so excited to see me. So I think to see that reflection, especially, um, you know, as a young 30-something, um, I think that they see, a lot of the time, they see themselves in me. You know what I'm saying? Like, a lot of the people that I looked up to when I was in my 20s, when I was an undergrad, were women in their 40s and 50s mm-hmm. um, were like aunties to me. But I think to me, they see me as like their big cousin. Like, oh, wow. Like, yes. She's, um, I tell them all the time, you know, I was doing woke before woke was a thing. We didn't call it that. <laughs> right. Her age, we weren't calling it that. But I feel you. I get it. And I have a lot of young ladies that come to me that are like, you know, I just didn't have 
the words to express how I felt, but you have the words to express it. And I'm, mm. so and sit in my office and spend time with me. So that has been something that I just never anticipated mm-hmm. um, being in, you know, academia. I didn't know that it was something that little black girls needed so much. Mm. I'm just over here. Just my whole heart is just smiling and <laughs> my face is just smiling, listening to the answer to that question. Oh, I just love it. It is so important, like beyond what we probably can even understand for us to see ourselves in these spaces that we've never seen ourselves, like so much power in that, so much power in image and then being able to know the person. Like you said, you spend time with them in your office. They can relate to you on many different levels. And you are also like a wayfinder, you know, carrying that light for them to follow their path, like. That's just so freaking dope. And the thing for me, for them, that I tell them all the time, you know, I come from, you know, single mom, you know, I I, I remember not knowing if I was going to be able to go to school, if I was going to be able to afford it. Mm-hmm. It's really important for me coming from where I come from, coming from the neighborhood where I come from, where, you know, my high school is currently um, closed down because the graduate, they just couldn't graduate folks. Um, so the lifespan of the school was really like short and just um, the time that I had there was really a blessing. So for me, mm-hmm. it's really important to then be back in the community. So I go home and I do community lectures and, you know, I hang out fo- with folks and I talk to folks. And that's one of the things I always tell my students, like, this is great. This experience that you have is great, but this experience is also a privilege. And so you owe it to the people who sent you here to go back and talk to them. You know, I, part of my teaching philosophy is this idea of a relevant education. Like, it has to be relevant to where we come from. It has to be. If you can't talk to your grandmama about it, then it may, it may not be worth that much. So if we're spending all this money and we're spending all this time and we're taking the time to acquire knowledge, to acquire history, to read and to write well, I emphasize we have to be able to write well, guys. Mm -hmm. We have to be able to do these things as the representatives of our people. Mm. So it's really important. I tell them all the time, you see me and you think I'm great, but also see the part of me that spends a lot of time in the community. Yes. A lot of time. You Mm -hmm. have to. Otherwise, (laughs) what are we doing? Yeah. And so... You know, I just told our listeners that I met you at a conference um, back in March that I was, you know, blessed to be the person to put it together. And I learned a lot about um, this level of, you know, academia. I'm someone I'm still working on my bachelor's, but I have aspirations of getting to where you are and I'm inching my way there. But I learned a lot of new terms and it really just opened me up like, wow, like, to meet you and, and um, Courtney and to understand that it's a lot, a lot of work and a lot of effort and a lot of time and discipline that goes into achieving, you know, these different, um, these higher levels of, you know, knowledge and understanding. What advice would you give to um, an, an adult, a non-traditional student who was on this journey? What would you tell me, Lanise? Well... <laughs> First, I want to say that, one, I want you not to sell yourself short because 
you organized a phenomenal conference. I've been going to that conference for several years, and you had that thing sewed up very, very tight. Mm. And that is, you know, people, we can't do the work if we don't have somebody on the admin side. And that was really extraordinary. So so let's make some noise for Sister Daphne. Yay, for thank you. With that because you were truly a blessing. Like then that thing was running like clockwork. I said, come on. Yes, baby. <laughs> from so far apart, you know what I'm saying? To mm. not even be in the same office. So you you already are a phenomenal woman in the first place. So that is one thing. Thank you. I think the other thing is that um some of my favorite students that I, I have are non-traditional. Some of my favorite people. Um, particularly um, one of my aunts, my favorite aunt, I, I, I was on her hard and I encouraged her to um, go back to school after retiring. And, you know, she just graduated. She just got her associate's degree. Um, she's about to get her uh, to start her bachelor's program and she's 62 years old. Wow. So, and I remember when she was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I was like, auntie, like, you got this. Like, it's never too late. And what's extraordinary about her is that she actually dropped out of high school two weeks before graduation. Mm. She had tremendous fear. She was like, I don't think I can do it. I haven't been in the classroom, like, computers. I don't know any of that. And I was like, no, just, you know, believe in yourself and you got this. And so I'm, I'm so proud of her. And I'm so proud of um, a lot of my friends that have been tra- non-traditional and gone through the process. Because the thing is this, I think when you're a non-traditional student, you're not wading through as much of the identity issues as the young folks. Mm. You know, so when you're 19, 20 year old, you're really trying to navigate some things. You know what I'm saying? Like you're away from your folks. You're really trying to figure out what kind of person you are and then. When you throw dating into the mix, oh gosh, <laughs> right? That a, a whole other—I won't say a distraction, but it definitely becomes time-consuming. You know, when you're younger and you're trying to juggle that, and you're trying to juggle school. And I think when you're non-traditional, there's just a level of seriousness that you bring to the table that is so appreciated in the classroom. Mm. I that for me, when I'm teaching, especially halfway through the semester. I'll just defer to my non-traditional student. Like, okay, you got me. (laughs) We're going to get this thing started because I know they do the work because I know it's a different level of passion. I know it's a different level of rigor. And it's hard to sometimes work a full job or have a family be uh, trying to rear these kids up and do this homework. Girl, you ain't never lied about that. But listen, it's never too late. It's Mm -hmm. never too late. Yes. And I think you know. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, I think that's a lesson that I've learned in my work. Like I said, I study um, education on the plantation. And, you know, I I read about so many folks who learn how to read at 40 years old on the plantation, 30 years old, 20 years old, uh, grandchildren teaching uh, 70-year-old grandparents. So it's never too late. And so I think that we, especially as a community, just need to get that idea out of our head that if it doesn't happen, by 22 it's not going to happen like no it just might not be your time like your time might be 41 wow like it is what it is but it's never too late especially when we're talking about you know having a dedication to our history and our culture and and 
and just the educational endeavor, like we have to realize that that belongs to us too. And so I hope that's what I'm communicating in my work is that the educational endeavor, like that has belonged to us and uh, will continue to as long as we're striving for that. So I'm proud of you. Wow. Wow. Thank you so, so much for reiterating that. You know, I often struggle with that. You know, I, um, I've gotten a lot better over times, but sometimes I do have that thinking of, dang, if I would have just did this right after, right after high school or did this or did that or switched over schools when I finished this and, you know, but I really have to get it in my head and my heart that I'm right on time with everything that I'm doing. And, um, yeah. You got to process. I have that on my desk. I have that over my desk. Yield to the process. Yeah, this is my process. And, you know, and making that statement, I was, look, <laughs> I was trying to say something else and it just came back up. You were talking about um, being out in the community and having that as a component of the work that you do. And when mm-hmm. I was saying I was learning different terms, I learned the term scholar activist, scholar mm-hmm. activism. Can you touch mm-hmm. on that briefly and why, why that's important? Oh, man, I feel like the scholar activist or as some of us call it, the activist intellectual. Mm. Um, It's our tradition. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we talk a lot about folks like W.E.B. Du Bois, right? Like, he's like the model of the scholar activist. is one who can produce all these works, but who can also build, like, a long-lasting institution. Mm. So, you know, shout out to Du Bois. However we don't really talk about Carter G. Woodson. I think the way that we should, because I really think that Carter G. Woodson was really embodying the activist intellectual tradition or the scholar activist in that, you know, the miseducation of the Negro is, is a timeless work. But the other part of that is that, you know, he also founded the association for the study of um, at the time, Negro life and history now African American life and history in 1915 and when he started that organization in 1915 he went door to door just a man that had a second phd in history from harvard that man went door to door yes people to join those organizations that weren't organization even the same thing with du bois you know when he did the philadelphia negro he got out there with that briefcase and that top hat and went to knocking door to door wow (laughs) Can I talk to you? Can we talk for a minute? So I think it's just so much of our tradition. And when you look at even folks, even black women like Ida B. Wells or like Mary McLeod Bethune, like, yes, education is so much at the root of what we do, but part of education is, you know, being in a community. And great voice quote, he says, we are to be top people. Mm. So as Sexuals, it's your job to go back into instead of going into these other people's communities and try to tell them what to do you need to go back into your community and first hear them out and then provide them with your your knowledge or your skill set it's funny because i've been working on a um an oral history project this summer i've been out in the community and i had the privilege of speaking to a 94 year old woman mm. and that told me about growing up and picking cotton. Wow. And I just was like, wow. And she was like, you know, it's very, it's backbreaking, tearful work. And she was like, and I was a child. And that's what blew me away. 
that she was like seven, eight. So you had to fill the, the sack up as tall as you and then toss it on your back. And I'm like, wow. Like that, this is a woman who was born, I think she said she was born in 1926. But she shared with me that she was raised by her grandmother who was enslaved. Mm. Who was enslaved. And so when you think about it, you know, you just think that it seems so far away until you start really talking to people. And if you're yeah. on books, if you're only on the campus, you might miss out on some really important life lessons that folks have for you. Wow. <laughs> that is so, that's so powerful. It really is. I'm just imagining like me sitting with her and hearing some of the things that she probably shared with you. Oh, and man. that's heavy. I can imagine that that was very heavy, but almost refreshing at the same time to really have that higher understanding of, like you said, like, it's not that long ago. Not that <laughs> you told me that I was like, oh, man, like, you know, we complain so much. We got so many, as my homegirl says, first world problems. Like, yeah, <laughs> we have so many problems. But she told me, she said, you know, I, I made it this far. I made it this far because I learned how to get up and pray and go to work and cry and pray again and then do it again the next day. Yeah. Wow. Mm, mm, mm. And yeah, I think that's what I meant by refreshing. Just that, I yeah. mean, it, it kind of it's like eh, double edged, but just realizing that okay, maybe we don't have it, we don't have it as bad because we do have first world problems. We do. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm. So, Lenise, I know that you have a passion to uplift Black women, and as Malcolm X stated, you know we are the most disrespected and neglected in America. What yes, are some solutions? What are some of your calls to actions um, that you feel will help shift that experience and belief? Well, you know, well, first things first, that's one of my favorite quotes. <laughs> that's one of my And it's the way he says it too, the most disrespected and neglected in America. So I always tell people, especially brothers, Brothers who are like, oh, you know, I'm more of, I'm not a king guy. I'm like more of a Malcolm guy. I'm like, well, you know, Malcolm said the black woman was the most disrespected and neglected. So how do you treat black women? Black mm. women. Mm-hmm. Um, I also would add an appendage to that and say that the black woman is the most disrespected and neglected in American history. So let me tell you why. Because lately... I've been hearing it. I kept hearing it. I kept hearing it until I was like, oh, that's kind of irking me a little bit. I keep hearing people say, you know, America was built on the backs of black people. America was built on the black people. We built it. It's really ours. And I'm like, I agree with that. However, the layer up underneath that is that America was really birthed from the wombs of black women. Mm. So when we talk about 4 million African people in America gaining their freedom at the end of the Civil War, really, really we're talking about four million different gestations in the womb. Mm. We really have to acknowledge that Black women have contributed considerably to the fabric of America. Wow. 
So the way that we treat black women, women, the way that we talk to black women, the things that we say, like, we have to not be resistant to that knowledge or to the corrective. For example, I tell my students all the time, I have this conversation with my friends all the time, this whole female woman thing. So when you call a woman a female, first of all, it's grammatically incorrect because female is an adjective and woman is a noun, one. Second of all, a female can be anything. A female can be a cat, a dog, <laughs> a anything, you know what I'm saying? Right. Something, the uterus that can give life. <laughs> However, only human beings can be women. Mm. So I tell, especially the young brothers all the time, like, yo, please stop calling these women females. And what's frustrating, I think a lot of the time is as black women, when we try to very politely say, hey, can you not disrespect me? We're met with the response of like, why not? Like, oh, okay. Because I'm a black woman. (laughs) Right. That should be a reason enough. It should be reason enough. So I feel like we just have to, one, be really just a lot more cognizant about the way that we refer to black women in the daily space. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, on the daily, like, why can't I be a woman? Why can't I be a goddess? You know, I love the goddess. That's why I'm here for the goddess talk. Like, yes. yes. <laughs> like, come on, divine, the divine God. That just conjures so much. Yes. But I feel like we're more inclined to be like, oh, these females be tripping. Like, no, stop. Like, please stop. Like, please stop. And I have that conversation so much. Like, it's, it's so simple, but I have that conversation with so many people, especially, you know, being in the AUC and with the young brothers at Morehouse. I have that conversation. So even with the young ladies, though, when I explain it to young ladies, then they're like, okay, I get that. I have to tell my boyfriend, stop calling me female. Like, yeah, you should. Exert your womanhood. Exert your character that you're a person, that you're more than your reproductive organs because being male or female is a matter of your reproductive organs. Mm -hmm. And we don't do that to men. We don't be like, oh, these males over here. Right. Those are talking (laughs) about we don't do that to men. (laughs) We don't do that. Yeah. Mm. So that is great. Language. Mm. I think Hmm. language is. I think the other part of that, what else do we do? One, I think we have to respect each other more as women. Like, we have to be in a space where even even if I don't agree with what you say, I have to make it a point that I'm not going to disrespect you in, in my disagreement. Yes. Yes. And I believe something as simple as that can help us begin to change the narrative of the, um, you know, the story around our relationships with each other. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Definitely. So, Lanise, I usually ask people who are um, guests on the show if there are ways, you know, that our listeners can contact them or if they have any projects or programs going on. Do you have anything in specific that you want us to um, look up or research or that you have going on that you would like us to support? 
I do have a couple of exciting things going on. Yay. So, you know, like I said, I'm a historian. I'm a public historian. I believe in community. And I had a really great opportunity this summer to um, be a part of an amazing project. So I was um, the exhibition designer and uh, graphic designer for a four-mile-long exhibit um, called Atlanta and the Civil Rights Movement, 1944 to 1968, here in Atlanta on the Beltline. It is an outdoor exhibit that consists of, I think we've got about 50 images, about 50 photographs um, from uh, the Civil Rights Movement specific to Atlanta. It's based on the book by Dr. Karshik Sims Alvarado. She was also uh, the curator and one of my mentors. She's uh, So shout out to her. She's amazing. That's another black woman. Oh my gosh. Um, so I was a part of that. The exhibit is up through December. So we're encouraging folks to get out there and you know put your walking shoes on and uh, get your walk on and um, take in some of the, the city's history. You know, Atlanta is a really, really, really rich city, like historically rich, especially in terms of the way that um, we've been able to preserve a lot of the history and culture in Atlanta. You know, Dr. King is the son of Atlanta. So uh, the civil rights narrative is is ongoing. However, what I do want to say and what makes the exhibit really special is that um, it's a well-rounded story of the movement. Like we've got photos of Malcolm is out there, Dick Gregory is out there, Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Ture is out there, Mary McLeod Bethune is out there. So it's really um, a, a story about a lot of the folks that we don't really talk about in relationship to the movement. Dr. King is out there definitely, but there's a bunch of images from the Atlanta student movement. There's a bunch of images of black women out there. So um, the hope is just really that that will really inspire again, um, the next generation of scholar activists and activist intellectuals to really see themselves in, in the images and really take something away from that. So I got that going on. And give us the, the name of that exhibition and where it is and if there are tickets that we need or anything like there that. No, it's, you could just walk right on to the Beltline. Um, the Beltline runs, um, it's about six mile stretch, I think, but the exhibit's about four miles and um, all of the, the posts are in the ground. So um, it's an outdoor exhibit for free. Awesome. Just black people on the Beltline. Um, again, the exhibit is called Atlanta and the Civil Rights Movement, 1944 to 1968. Um, all of the images on the Beltline come from um, Dr. Sims Alvarado's book, um, which is on Amazon. It's amazing, amazing, amazing work. I think she's got like over 100 images. Um, this exhibit is just about 50, but um, the book is also called Atlanta and the Civil Rights Movement, 1944 to 1968. Wonderful. And last but not least, I know you've hit on um, the fact that Black women have made a substantial contribution to this country and really mm -hmm. humanity, knowing mm -hmm. that where do you see us um, in the future? How do you see us impacting the future? Well, oh man, that's a pretty broad question. That's <laughs> heavy. Wait, what was the first so, thing to come to mind? <laughs> here's the first thing that comes to mind. You know, I live in Atlanta, and we have a, a, a black mayor named Keisha. So shout out to Mayor Keisha. <laughs> shout out to Keisha. Yes, shout out to Keisha. 
you know, Stacey Abrams is running for governor. Um, first black female governor. So, you know, I'm totally, she totally has my support 100. And she's talking about take down these Confederate memorials. And I'm like, take it all down. Yes, ma'am. Um, it's really funny that she's, so I was watching, um, I was watching the news the other day and I saw this woman, she's like, well, hopefully, you know, I want Stacey Abrams to win. And she was like, but I just can't hope but think like, hopefully, you know, black women will come out and vote and save us like they did in Alabama. And I thought to myself, that is so crazy that the world is literally expecting black women to show up and save them. But the really crazy part is that we always do. <laughs> However, what's crazy is that Black women always show up to save the world, but for some reason, people think that it's not in our own best interest. Mm. That in the process of trying to save the world, we're trying to save ourselves too. This is why I love Black Panther. I thought Ryan Coogler with the women and the women being the warriors and the savior, I thought that that was just such a, 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 a monumental point to make in this moment. Especially after, you know, I had told a friend of mine a few months ago, after like Star Wars had come out at the end of the year, and then I think Bright had come out on Netflix at the end of the year, and there's no black women. And I just was like, that's so crazy that you could put out that in your imaginary world, black women don't exist. But in your real world, black women literally save the day every day. Wow. <laughs> like, <you know> what? <laughs> what's the first thing you do you shout out your mama like mm -hmm. <laughs> we I think that black women are so strong and that I think like I said um because America has been birthed by the wounds of black women we gonna still keep living yes and keep inspiring and keep you know being a show of, of, of strength and survival and fortitude and, and not for everybody else, for black women. Mm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, I see in the future, I see um, black women being able to really, to really change the game. And I, I'm saying change the game. I, I think a lot of the time we say that ideologically, but that's a big deal that, a black woman could be the governor of Georgia. Even the idea, even the fact that she's got this far, even with the um, with the mayoral election, with the recount and all of that, for Keisha to still come out on top, like, black women are making a way. <laughs> We're making our way in, into these spaces, particularly, you know, into elected positions in the public sphere. That's why I shout out to Maxine Waters. Yes. I think we're really... In the, in, in the first wave of these black women who are elected officials who, one, are unapologetically black, and two, are making it happen. Mm. I don't think we've seen anything like that to this magnitude before. I think the world is changing. You know, some people are going to say that the, the hashtag Me Too movement, which was started by a black woman, is, is changing the conversation. And um, if that is the case, we have to acknowledge that it was started by a black woman. Again, here black women come to save the day. Mm, black women coming to save the day. <laughs> That's what I see. Is in I love few, it. I see us coming to save the day again. Again. Yeah. yeah.
so powerful. So, 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 so powerful. Thank you so much, Lanise, for coming on and sharing your jewels and little nuggets of wisdom and your time with us. Of course. I can't wait to come back. Hopefully you have me back. I will have you back. I would love to make it down to Atlanta to check out your exhibition. Can you remind me how um, how long is it going to be up again? It's up through December. Okay. And it is called Atlanta and the Civil Rights Movement 1944 to 1968 on the Atlanta Beltline. Um, and yeah. Yes. So you guys hear that if you are listening by way of Atlanta, if you're anywhere near Atlanta, please, 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 please make it to check out that exhibit. Um, Lanise, it has been such an honor. I can't wait to have you back on. I want to get Miss Miss uh, Terry Courtney, Courtney Terry. Yeah. <laughs> I Courtney love her. Yeah, absolutely. I told her, I said, hey, you know, I'm doing Goddess Talk Radio. And she was like, well, let me sign up and favorite right now. I love that. So. <laughs> I'm sure she'll be ready for that. But I do want to say, before we wrap up, I'm so proud of you, Jasmine. Oh, thank you. And I think that the stories of Black women are so important. And so what you're trying to do with Goddess Talk Radio is so important. And again, even the emphasis on that, you know, it's not Black women's talk radio, it's Goddess Talk Radio. It's really a conversation about the divine energy that black women have. And mm-hmm. that, so I applaud you and I commend you because we need the stories. The work is good. We need the work. And I'm just so proud of you. Wow. Wow. Thank you so much. My heart is sparkling. <laughs> Thank you so much. And I am, look, I want to return that love. I am impressed, proud, um, blown away and just really enamored by you and Courtney and a lot of other of the women and the brothers that I have met um you know over the course of working for that organization and just bearing witness to y'all's journey and learning more about you know academia blackademia as I call it in my mind um, oh I love that yes black yes academia. blackademia you know that on some t-shirts I love that <laughs> And I'm just, I, I'm, I'm just honored. Like, wow! I think it is um, just amazing. Just me, you know, having a similar story of just growing up and always. I've always been taught, you know, black is beautiful, and you know, my mom brought home books, and you know, we had encyclopedias growing up, and I was just always interested in us. And um, I'm thankful for my mother for instilling that into into me and knowing that history of, you know, it being stripped away because we all know where the, you know, who came to study with us when we were in our homeland and we had the the first universities and all of that. So the experience here, me understanding that that was something that was taken away has always made it even more um, honorable and special to me to want to learn and to, to actually do it. And so for you guys to, you know, take that step and pick that up for the ancestors. Oh my, it's just powerful on so many different levels to make it that high, you know, to have a PhD. I know our ancestors are just shining down and just so proud and, you know, it really makes their struggles not be in vain. So thank you guys. Oh, that was beautiful. Thank you so much. All right, y'all. 
I hope y'all enjoyed this conversation. I hope you are rethinking your life. I hope you just snatch your whole entire life back, like right now off of this conversation. And if you are like me and sometimes struggle with um, the thought that you should be further along than where you are in this very moment, please consider what, what Dr. Um, she's going to be a doctor. <laughs> Lanise said it's never too late. It's never, ever, 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 ever too late. And that, you know, trusting the process is all about um, understanding that. So, y'all, I'm not going to talk too much longer. I want y'all to catch me on the flip side. And in the meantime, you know what time it is. Enjoy this dance break. Dance break. Hey. Hey. <laughs> Thank you.